Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Clayton Lewis. Clayton began his career in national politics, serving as one of the youngest chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill for Congresswoman Louise Slaughter, before pivoting to the private sector at age 30. Clayton then worked on the executive teams that took Envia and House Values Public and was general partner at Mavron for over a decade. Most recently, he was the CEO and co-founder of Arivel company that helped thousands of individuals, including me, optimize their wellness and avoid disease. Arivel had raised over $50 million and employed over 100 people before closing down earlier this year. In addition to many career achievements, he's on the board of trustees for Harborview Medical Center and a competitive Ironman triathlete, which is like crazy, and a loving husband to Tom. Yes. Welcome, Clayton. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Okay. So I'm really happy that you haven't listened to the podcast because then you don't have any like... Like, but I'm going clues. to. No, when you I don't saw, have to. When I saw who you interviewed, like, Aww, game on. Oh, game on. And so many of my friends. You can get competitive. Exactly. Can get, okay, we'll track We're it. We're going to beat Dan Levitan. You got it. You know what's <laughs> funny is Richard Tate was like, how am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> He's competitive. Okay, we're going to start with rapid fire. Are you ready? All right, I am. Okay, Mr. Triathlete, what are you best at, running, biking, or swimming? Biking, hands down. Yeah, it's yeah. easiest. Uh, it's the longest part of the race. Yeah. And so swimming is such an opportunity sport for me. Yeah. Such an opportunity sport. So brag a little bit. Yeah, brag. This year, I came in first in my age group in Ironman Victoria, which means I got to go compete in Nice. But to show you what a slow <laughs> swimmer I am... The guy who came in second, yeah, I beat him by 10 minutes. He okay. beat me on my swim by 10 minutes. So I oh. had to go make up 20 minutes on the oh. bike and the run. Okay. So it's a good thing that I am not discouraged easily because I'm often the last guy out on the swim. But also, it doesn't start swim, bike, run? S- swim, bike, run. So yeah. you got to get that behind so you. So you got to yeah, yeah, so you you gotta come make in some like, time. oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's, um, that's, it's a great lesson in terms of... Don't be discouraged about where you are at a certain point yeah. in time. You can still win. I love it. Well, this is our rapid fire, and I'm, of course, like distracting us. Um, okay. Given your Mr. Health Nut, I'm just curious. What's your favorite food to indulge on if you're just, like, letting it go? Uh, well, it's not a food. It's a red wine. Oh, which one? Uh, definitely Pinot Noirs. Okay. So yeah. that's what you're going to indulge on? No food? Uh Come on, French toast, like what came to M&M's, mind was, fries. What came to mind was avocado. Oh, God. You are so healthy. I'll never forget. And I went to the Mavron office, and I was like, where's the junk food? And it was like all this fruit, all this healthy food. And they were like, yeah, well, Clayton's in charge. Had to take over. Love Got to it. keep them on task. You need to come to my pantry. It's so good. Um, okay, what's your favorite all-time movie? I'm like. Oh. That's a hard one, right? Schindler's List. Oh, Wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really well done. Um, when was the last time you and Tom went out dancing? In France, so it was about six weeks ago. Oh, nice! Yeah, 
Okay, what kind of dancing are you into? Just uh, straight up? Oh, straight up, yeah. Okay, Just, you're not like a salsa dancer or anything no, like that? No, I'm not. I want to learn so yeah. badly. Okay, are you an introvert or an extrovert? The reason I do triathlons is that in my professional life, clearly I have to be an extrovert. Mm -hmm. But I love to go be by myself for two hours every day, and so that feeds my introvert part. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't go do that, the balance of the day would get ugly. What do you do while you're working out or exercising? Do you listen to anything or are you just in your head? Uh, definitely running. It's about music because yes. you just got to go like boom, yeah. boom, boom. What kind of music do you listen to? <clears throat> um, everything. Everything. Like, yeah, but it's much more hip yeah. stuff and yeah. a lot of, of beat and a lot of action. Swimming, it's just like you lose yourself. Yeah. And then biking, you're trying not to be killed by cars. Yeah. I 100% agree with you on all of the above. Although I have a friend who does listen to music while he swims. And he that, loves it. Yeah, that's, it's like not, I said, yeah. my opportunity sport, I got to focus on the stroke. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, are you an, well, I'm assuming that you're an early riser. I said early riser or late to bed. I'm assuming you're early riser because you're training. A uh, little of both. Yeah. Yeah. And what quality do you most value in a friend? The ability to listen. With no, with no uh, advice? Just listen? Um. Advice is great, but it's what I admire most in anyone I interact with is their ability to listen. Mm -hmm. Because what's so interesting to me about life is that people love to talk, as clearly I do. Um, but if you can listen 80% of the time mm -hmm. and talk succinctly 20% of the time, it's extraordinary what you'll learn. Well, that's an incredible skill, especially the succinctly part. Yes. It's yes. hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's I feel like it's harder as I get older. I'm like, what was I thinking about? What was I going to say? I literally like lose my train of thought. And there's so many stories to tell. There's so many stories to tell. Okay, so let's start with your story. Let's talk about little boy Clayton. And I read here that you are from Idaho and Wyoming. Idaho. I was actually like really surprised. I don't no. know why. Country charm? No. You don't feel it? I mean, you're sweet, but you've got this chic city... Well, thank Swagger. you. So, no, I was raised in towns of less than 900 people. Okay. My dad was a cowboy. Uh, my mom was an artist. And as a kid, I changed sprinkler pipes. I baled hay. I milked cows. We had horses. Now, I knew it was a mistake. <laughs> I suspect my dad was not my dad. Wait, what do you... Oh, God, I love it. The milkman. So, what do you mean when you say he was a cowboy? Literally? Oh, literally. What, like, is, a, what is a cowboy? Like, for a job? Uh, so, he worked for the Bureau of Land Management. Okay. And his hobby was okay. he had horses which meant we had horses. And in Wyoming, we lived in the Tetons. Before school, before school, in eight feet of snow, we had to go hook up a sleigh to two horses, put 80 bales of hay on it, and go feed the balance of the 100 horses. And I'm like, Dad, there's five of us. Why do we need so many horses? Um, we would move into communities. Wow. And my dad was a strong believer in the environment, but we'd get a patch of forest where we could cut down the trees, we would cut down the trees, bring them back to our ranch. I had to peel the trees so we could build log fences for the horses. This is incredible. And I said, Dad, there are electric fences. Wait, <laughs> so, so do you, ways. do you, are you like handy guy? No, I am not handy at all. Because I was going to say, Tom gets to benefit from this. <laughs> no, like, come over to our house. There's, no, it was a mistake from day one. When I was eight years old, my grandparents showed up with my birthday gift it was, was a it? horse. Oh, and geez. I said, another, another mouth to fiend? Like, what are we thinking here? Oh, that is crazy. So was your dad from that type of upbringing also, I'm No, assuming? that was his life dream, and we all got to live it. Oh, lucky you. Is he still alive? No, he's not. I'm sorry. And are you more like him or more like your mom? It's so much more like my mom. <clears throat> my yeah. mom is like 
I think, you know, you're an incredible parent, three kids. Well, that's sweet. You haven't met the kids yet. <laughs> What's amazing what parents can do, I think, is give their kids self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And that's what both my parents did. But mm-hmm. my mom especially just believed I was a rock star. Of course, she jokes they were 20 when they had me. They were going to Washington State University. And they said, you came out, you're 40. You had to-do lists. You had things for us to do. You were literally like that? Oh, yeah. And um, when I left for college, they all go, we exhaled. Like, finally, he's gone. We can relax. So, so are you, do you have siblings? My brother's three years younger. My sister's eight years younger. Okay. So you're like the quintessential firstborn, like, Exactly. Yeah. Wired that way. Okay. And so um, I know that you've been publicly a gay leader in Seattle and in your community, but was that one of these things that, like, you did not want to tell your parents because they're a cowboy? I mean, that's like the worst. A well, cowboy. It just sounds like... The reality is I'm 60. Yeah. And in these towns of 900 people, mm-hmm. like the concept of being gay didn't even exist in my frame of reference. Well, that's like, what I was we're thinking. we're going way back, way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that wasn't even like a debate I had with myself because it was... Like something that I had no, like there was no will and grace. Right. You know, there was no frame of reference to <laughs> right. say, oh, this is what that it means to be like me. gay or straight or bisexual. And so in my childhood, it wasn't something I dealt with until I went to college. And then, and because you weren't aware of it or because you didn't get exposure to it or because most of my friends that are gay, if I ask them, they say they were like five or six when they realized. Yeah, I was not. I'm much more, if there's a continuum of gay and straight, yeah. I'm a little gray. You're a little gray. Yeah. Were you ever um, not married to a woman or anything like that? No, but three women that I had relationships with. I would marry you. You're hot. Oh, you are so kind. Dude, especially but 60. You look like you're 40. I need to know what um, you're doing on your face. Okay, what are we doing after this? <laughs> Cocktails. We need a room. Showers. <laughs> The three women, so I dated three women in my 20s who were all extraordinary women who you probably know a lot of them. I mean, I'm sure all they're these all ballers, but I don't know everybody. They're extraordinary women. Well, of and course. And great friends, and they're great friends with Tom and mine. That's amazing. That shows you how gray it was. <laughs> Super gray. <laughs> Speaking of gray, you literally have no gray hair, but we can talk about other things. Um, okay, so when you were little and you were kind of thinking maybe I was born into the wrong family, like how did I end up on this with these horses. What were you kind of fueled by? What were you energized by? Do you remember? Oh, I do. So when we moved to Wyoming, uh, it was amazing that at that point up in the Tetons, this oil company was going to come in, set off a small atomic explosion to do fracking and get, collect the oil. What's fracking? Do I know this? Uh, so it, you go in and you basically are breaking up the shale oh, okay. and so that the oil comes together. Okay. And so in junior high, I organized against that, that thing. And so I took it on. There's this town of 900 and I got really focused and said, okay, we've got to stop this. And then we moved to the small town in Idaho and they were going to build a coal-fired plant. So once again, I started organizing and being opposed to that. And... Like, I wrote these editorials and got these people organized. And, of course, our newspaper of this town of 900 people, I turned in the editorial and he goes, you didn't write this. I'm like, what? And I had to get my... How old were you at this point? I was like a junior uh, in high school. And, you know, my English teacher went down and said, actually, he did. Uh, Became editor of the um, high school paper. But, you know, I've always been an organizer. When I moved to Seattle, I set a goal to become president of the University of Washington. You know, and here I am, this kid from Idaho. How did you choose UW? Um, my grandparents lived in Renton and my whole childhood from Idaho, I'd come to Seattle and think, this is Nirvana. And you were in Renton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Renton. And so I was just always going to be the UW. 
But then I got here and thought, okay, I got to take over. Got to become student body president. So I asked to meet with a gentleman who was a student body president. I said, I'm going to have your job in a year. Any advice? And he's like, who are you? And have where you are seen you from? the Have you seen uh, the show Politician? No. You have to watch it on Netflix. Just okay. Write it. I'll tell you after the podcast. Okay. But I think it's... It's like you. It's part of life about setting audacious goals. Yeah. So I put on my mirror, you will be elected student body president on this date when I first got here. And then I just started organizing all these constituency groups to get that done. And boom, it happened. That's um, amazing. And I do remember also as a kid, I used to think I might be a witch. because <laughs> I was a witch for Halloween. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> I would think things and they would happen. And so that's what I think is also really interesting to about manifest, life. To manifest, yeah, yeah, what you want. Well, to actually set wicked, audacious goals. Yeah. And you're not always going to hit them, but then also start to be verbal about them. Uh, and Once you put it out there, there, then you have to be a little more accountable. Oh, and it gets scary. Yes. And so, Did you tell people you wanted to be student? I mean, you told the guy, I'm going to take your job. Did you? Oh, and oh. Then you were like organizing, but organizing around that idea? Oh, yeah. So uh, I never wanted to be in a fraternity until mm-hmm. I realized they had the biggest voting block. And so <clears throat> when I was going through Russia, I'd say to these houses, I'm going to be student body president. I'll help you if you help me. And then I became president of the junior and a fraternity council so I could organize those blocks of votes. Oh, that's brilliant. So I was really... So were you thinking maybe you would go on to become a politician? Oh, completely. Completely. And so um, I worked in our state capital uh, in Olympia. Mm-hmm. And then after being in local politics early in my 20s, I thought I should go learn national politics. I'm from Washington State. I've worked in our capital, and I set a goal to become a media consultant and went back and started doing all these informational interviews and realized <clears throat> that was not my calling, but there was this organization called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Yes. And so I got hired, long story, to be the regional director. And so all of a sudden, this kid from Idaho and Wyoming <clears throat> is advising candidates in New York and Philadelphia on strategies to be elected members of Congress. That's incredible. Oh, it was such... And what were you super passionate about? Like, what causes were you... Uh, definitely... The environment? For... Well, for whatever reason, I've always been wickedly passionate about health and wellness. My first business was actually a health and wellness bar when I was in college. Have you ever been unhealthy? Um, like some people who are into it are like, I was a fat kid. Or, no, no. Oh, I'm, like, I'm assuming now. She's, no. He's like, have you seen me? <laughs> have you seen my 12-pack and my straight teeth? Come on no, now. Uh, uh, no, but for whatever reason, it's like my sister tells the story. Are your, are your siblings healthy? No. <clears throat> Oh, all. make sure they're not listening. You guys yeah. look great. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've sent them letters. They could tell you. <laughs> okay, so you've always been into health and wellness. So that was like one of the platforms that Big you were... Big platform. Um, when I was student body president, I was focused on three things. One, providing childcare to single, low-income parents. Because I'm like, okay, if you're a parent and you're trying to go to college, we got to help you take care of your kids. Uh, second was funding for women's programs, especially sports programs at the IMA. And then third was keeping tuition low because it was a time when we were going through an extraordinary budget crisis in our state. And the administration was trying to uh, fund a lot of it on the back of students. But once again, organizing. So they were trying to close down these childcare centers. And I said, oh, you know, it's that's a nice idea, Clayton, but we can't afford to do it. And we were paying for it with student funds uh, called service activity fees. And so I worked with the child care centers, and we had a board of regents meeting, and I brought in all the children, and they picketed with picket signs oh, around the administration no. building. How do you say no to that? 
we were on the front page of both the PI and the Times at, the, at, the, at that moment, uh, and all three television stations. And all of a sudden, we caught the attention of Olympia. And that's, you know, part of what made me interested. And then I was very fortunate to be chief of staff for an extraordinary woman. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what made you decide to pivot and go into the private sector? One, I did not enjoy the dance legislation. Yeah. And so... How like would it, you describe it? Because I'm not, I'm not. Even then, when it was so much healthier than it is today, oh, it's terrible. Um, the would revisit the same issues time and time again. And that would make me crazy. Yeah, so slow. Because you're so action oriented, like I am. That yeah. would just uh, no. Need to get it done now. Yes. Second, probably more importantly, I recognized I did not enjoy working with constituents, and so people would come with problems that some people would be so passionate about solving, mm-hmm. and I'd be like focus. You can get that done. Yeah. Yeah. I could imagine that that would be super frustrating. Mm-hmm. And um, and also you were business administration major, right? But you know, the reality, I did all of my time in energy and being a student body president. We had 400 employees, $8 million budget. I was in Olympia. I was in DC. But yes, my BA degrees in business. So were, were you ever thinking, you know, some kids, they're like, I'm always wanted to be in business. I just know that about myself. No. Was, that was not you. No, it was not me at all. So do you feel like you're kind of an accidental success story? As far, I mean, you've been very, very successful in your business career. Um, what I, do you kind of attribute it to? Um. Well, I think there's a few things. One, it is always, as I said, how do you set really audacious goals? Yeah. And how do you put them out there? Because then things start to line up. And mm-hmm. what I say to people that I mentor a lot is that every day there's there's thousands of opportunities going by us, but because we don't have any filters, they just fly right by. And if you can be really audacious and set really clear goals, all of a sudden you start to see all these opportunities that mm-hmm. otherwise you never ever would have identified. Second, what's so interesting to me is people want to help each other. They really want to help each other. And it goes back to what I said earlier about I would go into a meeting and I'm really good at getting connected with folks. Mm -hmm. And I'd say to someone, you know, so-and-so said I should talk to you about advice. And I'd ask three questions and then I'd just open it up with tons of open-ended questions. What are the questions? Give me, I'd love to know, just like you're doing right now, tell me your story. How did you end up here? What do you think about this? And every question, because I'm sincerely curious about them, redirect back to them and learn, learn, learn. Well, the reality is, you know, I'm falling in love with you because you're asking me questions and you're interested in me. But I'm gen- you're genuinely interested like I am. Like people think it's crazy, but that's my fuel. Like yes. genuinely, I yeah. love human beings. I, I always overarch on that on personality mm-hmm. assessments. I'm like connectivity of human interaction is mm-hmm. like my number one thing. Yes. So. And look how it's manifested itself yeah. for you. Well, similar. I mean, I'm just, I'm always curious. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you ask those three things, you're kind of just leaning and into then, the person. And then I'd say, well depending on where I was in, let's say, thinking about a change or a job search, and they'd say, well, given I've done X, now at the end of the conversation pivoting to me, what advice would you have for me? So once again, soliciting information. And all of a sudden, they'd have to think. And then I'd go, you know, I'd love it if you just take a minute to critique my resume, because as you know, no one reads resumes. So boom, all of a sudden, it's not, what do you think? It's, would you give me advice? Man, they'd dive in, they'd mark it up. And then depending on how each meeting went, I'd say one of three things. Who else do you think I should talk to? 
And then they'd come up with two or three people. And when I was feeling really bold, I'd say, could you just pick up the phone right now and call this person and say, I'm going to put Clayton on the line. You've got to get together with him. And more often than not, when I'd say that, they'd do it. Wow. Or I'd say, you know, in today's world, you'd say, can I send you an email that you'd forward on? Yeah. But people do want to connect. 100%. And also, when you demonstrate that you are interested sincerely in someone and you've learned something from them, they want to share the gift they've given you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But is that what you're saying you're attributing your business success to or just your opportunities that have come along? Well. Because you've been very successful. I mean, there's getting the job. Right. But then there's um, getting what I would call how you've been described as as somebody to me who's got like literally like a cult following. Anybody that I know that's ever worked with you, for you, around you, would do anything to do it again. And they would jump through hoops for you, and you just really have a way of um, leading. Well, and thank you. Obviously, that's an extraordinary compliment. And if they put that on my tombstone and nothing else, that would be amazing. One, And you were also in the Nice triathlon. <laughs> that should go on there, too. <laughs> um, one, I think it's clearly defining what is success. So first, you've got to say, this is what we're trying to do. And if you've clearly defined success for the organization, next thing you got to do is to find success for the individual. I'm inviting you to go on this journey with me because I understand this is where you're going, what you want to do and how these pieces fit together. And be really clear that it's not just about the organization, but it's about this individual. And you're going to help this individual really succeed within the organization and recognize and acknowledge that. I, what I love about being 60 is in my career, I've now had the opportunity to work with a number of people time and time again. Mm -hmm. And you get this relationship that's so simpatico that you almost don't have to speak, that you literally can just look at each other because you know what their strengths and opportunities are. They know the same thing about you. Mm -hmm. You also know that you've completely got each other's back. And so at Aravel, the most recent company, what almost everyone said, and it was so tragic that we had to close it down, was we loved each other as a team. Yeah. Loved each other. And we loved our customers and everyone felt that. So like this extraordinary high level of engagement and focus on doing what we felt was the right thing to do. Yeah. I want to talk about Arivel, but you yeah. said a few things that I want to go back to. Okay. First, and don't let me forget because, you know, I'll get confused. Um, first, you talked about mentoring. Um, a, have you ever been mentored? And B, how does that relationship come about when you're mentoring others? Do they ask you or are you seeking it out? Um, so what I love about life is that everyone you work with you are learning so much from them. And I've been so wickedly fortunate. So think of Lee Hood. <clears throat> what is Lee Hood known for? Being a scientist and mapping the human genome. Visionary, yeah. yeah. But the lesson, and it resonated obviously with me, is Lee is a determined optimist. Now, it could be at, at his cost and my cost, but he's so optimistic that you will kill yourself to take that hill to make it happen. Uh, Dan Levitin, who I know you met with, Life is about relationships. And so Dan is amazing at his ability to create relationships, build, sustain, and foster them. Uh, Ian Morris, who you had on here, you know, Ian, he's so creative in terms of his ability to reinvent what a business is doing or take a business and extend it. Uh, Kristen Hamilton, you know, I've yeah. never met anyone more passionate, more focused, and more inspiring, like, we're going to get this done. Yes. So... When I think of mentoring, it's like the formal way. You're taking things from people whether they know it or not. Yeah, kind of there's thing. like 
yeah. these gifts that we're giving each other. And what about other. you as far as a mentor? Have you been formal about that? Um, when people ask for me to mentor them, I take mm-hmm. them through a screening process where, mm-hmm. okay, what do you want to accomplish? At the end of this process, what will success look like? Um, why do you want to have me mentor you? Then I give them an exercise. And then if they come back with the exercise, then I'll say, okay, what we'll do now is we'll meet once a month. Uh, and we'll do it as long as we think this is a useful process. But there's three elements. You need to send me the agenda two days before because uh, <clears throat> we want to make really good use of this time. want to be really clear on what are we solving for here. And then we sort of reflect on, okay, what are the outcomes and is this helpful or not? I just got intimidated. I was going to be like, will you mentor me? And all of a sudden, you just weeded me out. Like the lazy ones. I'm like, no, but maybe. Um, But I feel like I would want you to be a life coach more than just a business coach. Because like everything about you, like, okay, I could get fit. (laughs) (laughs) I could eat healthy. My skin would look great. And I would be very successful. And it seems very clear minded in my leadership skills. Like you seem that you're clear. And sometimes that's hard to do. So even when you're talking about selling a vision to an employee, we're in the process right now of, I mean, our team could not be more, uh, what's the word? Like, hey, you're just, we love each other, right? But I want to make sure that I can also meet their goals and their personal um, career development. And sometimes that's hard within a business like a recruiting firm because mm-hmm. like, well, either you're recruiting or you're not. Right. <laughs> and so do you stay really clear on the vision of the business or do you sometimes work around the person and say, I'd like, well, you want to open up that? Go for it. I believe in you. Um, yes and no. And so there are people, so I'm reflecting on Aravelle, um, the person who ended up supervising, supervising the largest group of employees was Sandy Kaplan, head of our yes, coaching. She was, I met her. Yeah. So Sandy was employee number two. Yes. Sandy came in and she had never managed people before. She was coach of our first group of 100 pioneers and was so compelled by her vision for how you actually take this complex information, translate it into actionable recommendations and help people. And so said, Sandy, like, here's an opportunity. Like, let's put you in charge of the coaching program. And she was passionate about doing this. And so put the right set of resources around her to make it happen. Jill McGuire Ward, our head of HR, extraordinary person, was like the perfect partner for Sandy because Jill has worked for so many Mavron startups in terms of helping build out with a young management team to make things happen. On the flip side, I'm reflecting on a person that had a very different vision for his role in the company. Uh, We worked with that for a while, and it started to get feedback, and he was a direct report, started to get feedback that, wow, it's all about him. Mm. It's actually not about the company. And so then, and he'd worked for me at another company. So really fascinating Mm -hmm. because I'd recruited him in. And so everyone's like, whoa, Clayton brought this person in. We got to get behind this. Yeah. And so, but then what happened was it just was so about his vision versus the collective vision of what we were trying to get done. Mm -hmm. I gave him a couple warnings and I fired him. Yeah. Well, that takes a lot of courage and that's hard to do, especially someone you've worked with in the past. Um, Everyone that I speak to about you would move mountains to work with you again. But what do you do when you just don't know the person? You can't back channel them. How do you assess talent? So a tool that I've used um, for probably two decades now is a tool called the Harrison. And what I love about the Harrison is unlike some tools that tend to be somewhat light and not and 
often science-based. The Harrison Space in Science, it's been taken by literally hundreds of thousands of people. And what you learn from the Harrison is not just your aptitudes, but what's important to you, how important it is it, is it, and your predispositions. So you learn all that. You also learn under stress, where do you flip? Mm. And so in a stressful situation, someone that might be highly analytical might become illogical. So let me give you an example. And what I do with the Harrison is that I use it as a recruiting tool. And before I hire someone, they take the Harrison. And so I'm able to complement that with everything I've learned about them in the process. And then... I always do a debrief with them. I don't do it, but I have someone debrief with them on all the things we learned about them in the Harrison and sort of assess if they're true. For an example, uh, at Aravel, we had a team that was highly analytical, but also highly optimistic. There was a member of that team that people thought, oh, so-and-so is just pessimistic. And so what was so powerful about the Harrison is that we were able to understand that this individual was a 10 on analyzes pitfalls. And so as she was probing and asking questions that some people thought, why is she asking that? We actually learned that it was so important that when she was asking questions, like focus, listen, because we might have been a little too optimistic. Most of us were good at analyzing pitfalls, but she was a 10. And so what was also so helpful about that situation is it allowed us to understand her motivation was really pure. Now, Right. She wasn't just trying to be Debbie Downer. No. She was like, this is how she thought. Now, another individual, what was so fascinating is that, as you've seen here, I tend to talk quickly. I tend to be like, focus, let's get stuff done. And sometimes with my management team, I can move too quickly. And so I'd be in meetings and an individual would be sharing things with me, which I thought I understood. So you like, yeah, yeah, got it. And yeah. they felt dismissed. Completely. Yeah, I tend to do that too sometimes. Like and I just did it to you. What I did, what I learned on the Harrison for this individual, their number one, number one requirement is that their opinion was valued. So what was I doing? I was devaluing this individual's opinion every time I said, yeah, got that. And so... It, In your mind, you were just being efficient. Completely. And instead, I was, and so it was so, so after I got the Harrison data back, I was able to say, A, I was able to inhale and pause and listen. B, I was able to reflect and say, what I hear you saying is X, is that what I understand? And it was extraordinary then how much more I could learn from this individual as opposed to feeling, oh, we're at angst. And what's so powerful about the Harrison is that when you have the whole team do it, you're then able to plot each of you on these grids and to say, oh, when Clayton's under stress, he'll become quiet. And I actually do. And I'll disengage if I'm what's called a flip, which I've reached such a point that I'll just like pull back. And so people will take it as not interested or um, we've lost him. And actually they have. And so what they've got to do is help me come out of that flip. Or people would be in a flip when you're in a meeting with them. And we can actually use the language. We did that in Mavron where we'd say, it feels to me that you're in a flip. Why don't we give this 24 hours and we can have a much better conversation about this? I can't imagine being a fly on the wall at Mavron because, I mean, Dan's incredible and so inspiring. And I, mean, I know a lot of the team members. Mm -hmm. And um, we, yeah, wow. It's super. This is this alone. I'm like, I'm writing it down, the Harrison. And so what about interview questions? Do you have any go-to of kind of your best questions to get people to really open up? So 
my strategy in an interview, uh, when I, let's say someone's gone through the process and I've done an initial interview with them, I then tell them set aside three hours and I walk through their whole life. Uh, and the reason I do that is I have five questions I ask about every element of their life. And what happens out of that is patterns emerge. And also what happens is after three hours, people become somewhat fatigued. Um, and you've also built a relationship during those three hours. And all I'm doing is asking questions and listen. And so the, um, I have three questions I start with, and then I go into five questions. And the five questions are, first, tell me why you decided to take this position. And so there I'm obviously trying to understand how's it fitting into the life map? Were they strategic about the position? Um, so that that's right out of the gate. I'm getting so much like, why did you do this? Then the next question I say is, <clears throat> and this is pretty interesting, is I'll say, who did you report to there? And how would they rate you on a scale of one to 10? And why would they rate you that way? And how, what's their name and how do you spell it? And so in their mind, they're going, wow. Um, I get to talk in third person about myself and sort of what they said about me. Uh, another question that's really key is, why did you decide to leave? And so, you know, sort of strategically, what are the pieces that came out of that? And so I think we short, 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 and you know this so much better than any of us, short change the whole hiring process and getting to know someone. And so this ability to say, take me on the journey of your life and then to ask the same five questions. And I'm up front start, like I'm gonna ask you the same five questions about every position uh, and to see the patterns that then emerge mm -hmm. about their strategic thinking, why they left, what people thought about them. Or um, if they describe stuff in a way, I always find that it's interesting when you hear people take no accountability. Exactly. And, and a lot of blaming. Well, the other two questions are, A, what are you most proud of? Mm -hmm. And so what I'm always curious- in their whole life. Uh, no, for each of these positions. Oh, wow, each and, position. And then the next thing I ask is, what was the biggest disappointment in for you in this position? And tell me what you were most disappointed in about something you did about yourself. And it's so amazing because some people have no ability to demonstrate any learning or any reflection. They're disappointed about Bobby Joe. They're disappointed about the market. They're disappointed about an opponent. Um, but if they can't get to... I was so embarrassed. I was Just so disappointed. Vulnerability, too. Yeah. And ability. And ability to learn, yeah. to learn and reflect. And so those five questions become really powerful. And then to take that back and um, what I do is I publish those notes and then I give them to the whole committee and then we check those against references also. And so within the committee, are you saying, hey, I'm going to hit these things pretty hard. I want you to hit these so that there's not on repeat the same thing? Well, so no one's going to take them through the three-hour experience yeah, that I no. did. And I only do that for direct reports. But I'm going to say, here's what I'm most concerned about. Uh, here are the themes that I think we need to dive deeper on. Here's what seems to be the person's strengths. And these are the things we need to explore in the reference checks that we're going to do. Yeah. Oh, this is super helpful. Thank you. Of course. So you also talked about how when you've worked with people in the past and you start to kind of almost read each other's minds and know each other's strengths and weaknesses, what's your weakness? Like if I was working with you, what's the like, oh, yeah, this is Clayton's Achilles heel, like blind spot? Um, Maybe so, not blind. Oh, no, it could be blind. So, you know, let's talk about Arabelle. So because Arabelle was... Well, both... let's first tell our listeners about Arabelle because I am an early pioneer. Oh, thank you. And a lover mm -hmm. of Arabelle and was super personally sad. Not probably as sad as you guys, but I felt really sad. Yeah. Um, I was very much rooting for that company and for you. Thank you. So what we did is that our vision was create a company to help people optimize their wellness 
in the short term, the long term, and of course that means avoiding transitions to disease. So this idea of you can really be well. And uh, what we did is that we looked at a complex set of data, genetics, clinical labs, gut microbiome, saliva, and then we gave you a coach, as we're talking about Sandy, to translate that data into actionable recommendations. Mm-hmm. And so the company, four years, as you said, raised over $50 million, GeekWire Startup of the Year, the most amazing team. And my weakness, and you know, something that I'm now taking a year off to reflect on, is that we drank our own Kool-Aid. In mm-hmm. that first, we thought, we're going to be really careful. The first year, we only brought in 100 people because no one had ever looked at these data sets and said, can we help people change the trajectory of their health? 100 people, wickedly sophisticated people, and it was amazing what we learned. Like Taylor Washburn, you know, walks around Seattle saying Aravel saved his life and much less dramatic stories of taking data and actually helping people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking of my own story. I'll tell you after. Go great, on. Great. No, go, go on. And so then what we did is we launched the company and boom, wickedly expensive, 3500 bucks. And in our first quarter, I think roughly 800 people signed up. And so we thought, wow, hunker down and work with these 800 people. engaged in months in 11 and 12, which never, ever, ever happens in a wellness company. 60% of them signed up in year two, another $1,500. So we had these early adopters that were over-the-top passionate and engaged. The clinical data was second to none. We had hospitals investing, had life insurance companies investing. But I didn't pause to say, is there actually a value prop for where consumers are going to be anytime soon. Because, as you know, in the What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so in the venture world, what you're always trying to do is you're trying to build a company and you're trying to intercept where consumers are. And so enough in the future, Aravel was a decade too early. And what that means is that for consumer companies today, they either have to immediately, you know, the surprise and delight is just so extraordinary. Right, you're like, duh, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, Or it's solving a big pain point, like I want to lose 50 pounds now, where what we were trying to do at Aravel was way too soft. We're going to help you optimize your wellness for the future. And while we were doing that in spades, that is not something that Americans are interested in investing in. Well, except for if you think about, I mean, all of the gyms and all of the diet fads, and I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. I think the problem is that Americans seem like they want a quicker fix than that. They don't fix. they don't want the like in one year, maybe you're down ten percent and you're eating more cruciferous vegetables and you're exercising thirty minutes and you're drinking your water. I mean, all of those things are mm-hmm. like and they feel sometimes like nice to haves. Like, yes. okay, well, did I need to spend spend thirty five hundred dollars right. for that? If yep. you're if you're already pretty well. Yep, exactly. You know, so mm-hmm. I, that was probably the category that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um but I did love the idea of understanding. I found out that I have like two out of three of the obesity gene. I don't really know even what that means. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I need to do more cardio yes. than the average person. Um, but yeah, I could see that. And I thought for a minute that you guys were pivoting to kind of more B2C selling into companies. And we did try that. Uh, so we did test with hospital systems. We did test with um, a number of companies. But once again, our value prop was off. Mm. And I do believe in about a decade we're going to be there. You know, there's three drivers of human health. 60% is behavior, lifestyle, environment, diet. 30% is genetics. 10% is the healthcare system. And I'm passionate about healthcare. I've been on the board of Harborview for over a decade. But going to back to my blind spot, my blind spot was, A, I'd 
following my passion. Like this was... You were eating, breathing, sleeping. Oh my God. Like this is what I believe so passionately have my whole life. Yes. Second, I went out and got all my friends and family in the company and so Lee. And so they were all like, wow, we love this. So you were surrounded by other passionate people. Completely. All early adopters. And so, and then we had this data that was so transformational that I had hospital systems investing, life insurance companies investing, labs investing. We were on the cover of Nature Biotechnology. It's like all this I stuff know, was like the up. hot company. And yeah. we had candidates that we placed there that it wasn't a hard sell because if that's your passion, mm-hmm. I mean, people would be like, I'll take a pay cut to go there. Right. Done. So then the flip side was over here in the back of my mind, I knew my cogs were out of control. But it was my hope and my belief, Lee's belief, that the cost of the genetics and the clinical labs would the come down. Would. Yeah. Over four years, we got them down from $10,000 per participant to $800 per participant. We lowered our price from $3,500 for a year to $100 a month. Could not figure out a customer acquisition cost, regardless if we did it direct or through the channels, that there was any signal that that, that company was going to scale in the way that made sense. Yeah. So the flip side is Lee has his institute, the Institute for Systems Biology. They took our scientific team. They took our research team. They're working on all the data. They're continuing to do really important yeah, work. Yeah, because you already own all of this data. Yeah, really important work. And so, you know, it was the most rewarding, invigorating, crushing experience of my life. I can only imagine. And were you depressed after all of this? So for me, it was tragic. Because you're always so happy that I'm like, I couldn't even imagine you. Uh, I can't remember who I spoke to. I think it was Alicia, and she was seeing you for lunch like a week after I found this out. And in my mind, I was like, are you guys just going to like hold each other? Because it both, of, I mean, every time I talked to those guys and you, it was like, yes, and I got it. Mm-hmm. So the, were you um, kind of traumatized by it? I think, yeah, in reflecting, I knew it was coming. As you know, I was a VC for a decade. Plus, you're a witch. Uh, I'm a witch. <laughs> and I'd done a number of companies. And you know, and you learn from your success, and you learn a hell of a lot from your failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so <clears throat> I had been really clear with the company uh, in a very transparent way that there's three things we've got to figure out. And we had team meetings every other week. And I'm like, oh, my God, our team meetings were so extraordinary because every team meeting started with two anonymous stories of members. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and so we just lived and breathed what we were doing for individuals. But I was really clear, like, these three things have to happen. And then it was, yeah, it sounds trite to say it, but the perfect storm, all three things didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, there's no elegant way to do it. And probably one of the most devastating moments of my life is I had to get up in front of the company and say, we're closing. And I you can't could just see imagine. their faces. And then I burst into tears. Well, and, of course. And I was so hysterical that someone else had to read my comments because I was really upset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the same person that people would still go follow, which um, I want to hear about your one year Hey, what is happening? You're taking a year. This I need to live vicariously through you. So what's happening now? Another big part of life I believe passionately yes. is you gotta pause and reflect and learn. And so I've been fortunate in my life to take a year off three times. How? Um when? Uh, so I took a year off between when I decided I was no longer going to do politics. Okay. That was a big deal. Uh, so I went to New Zealand and went biking. Uh, my husband and for I... For a year? Uh, went there for about three months, but then did a bunch of other stuff. Uh, my husband and I were living in D.C., and I sold a company that had started there. And so, and my husband loved his job there. So I said, well, I'll take a year off, and then in six months you take a year off and our six months will overlap and then we'll slowly move our way back to Seattle, uh, which we did. And then... What'd you do in that year? Raced and biked and traveled. You are Mr. Biker. Yeah. No, I love to bike. 
And so I'm taking a year off now, which is beyond extraordinary because there's all these gifts that come out of it. So at Airvel, I worked every single minute I was awake. I mean, I was beyond possessed. And so what does happen, and it sounds storybook-like, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but you do lose contact with people you love. So I have a friend who's got an illness, and the week that Aravel closed down, she and I go now, and we walk every Friday. So we go huh. on a two-hour walk every Friday, and we have every week since Aravel's been closed. Never would what a, have happened. That's a gift. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, like, I so look forward to those walks. I have another friend um, who lives in D.C. who's pretty far along with MS. We just flew her out uh, and with her, you know, got to meet her service dog and took her up in the mountains. She loves the mountains. On Friday, I'm taking my mom and my nephew and my husband and my nephew's wife, and we're going to Papua New Guinea and New Zealand, excuse me, Australia for three weeks to explore. And so... Like, these are life experiences. Oh, yeah. Like, I love working hard, but... This is also pretty... I mean, sign me up. Unbelievable. Now, and who does I'm all racing. the planning? Are you doing this planning or Tom? Uh, so we outsource a lot of it. Oh, that's uh, smart. Yeah, so that's we find companies smart. that we think are extraordinary. So you have found really cool companies yeah. that can create Amazing. the type of experience that yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. And um, how did how long have you and Tom been together? We, November 1st, was the 28th anniversary of our first date. And how did you meet? Is this a politics situation? Well, so I turned 30 and I thought, okay, I need to get real. It's time for a relationship. So I made a list of what I was looking like, for. You sound like a woman right now. You're <laughs> freaking me out. Oh my gosh. Okay, man, can. And yeah, so, you got to keep it in your wallet and look yeah, at it so, every day. So I had a list and I knew Tom from the Y. So I knew he was attractive because we worked out at the same okay. place. So you knew he was interested in fitness. Fitness. Uh, loved his politics. We were both engaged in politics. Tom was working for city councilwoman Jeanette Williams at the time. And so I called to invite him out. And this is 28 years ago. So it's before the internet, before texting. He didn't return my call. I'm like, who does he think he is? Yeah, you're like, I'm Clayton. <laughs> right. So we had a mutual friend. And so I called Krishna Fels and said, call Tom and say, why will he not call me back? And so she did. And he said, oh, I thought he was calling for money because he's working for this candidate. And I thought he was going to ask me for money. So he returned the call. We had our first date at the Queen City Grill. How appropriate. And that's where we went for dinner. Perfect. Uh, on November 1st. And a month later, I moved in and here we are. Really? Yeah. That's like a fairy tale. It has been in many ways. That really is amazing. <laughs> no pun intended. That's so awesome. You're, you're quick. I like it. Um, and so what, what kind of trends? I mean, if you could go be a consultant if you want. I mean, you're going to take a year off, which I'm so jealous of. But, um, yeah, that, that is the, like, nice benefit of you guys don't have kids. I love my kids. Love you guys. Well, we're extraordinary uncles. Extraordinary. Yeah, we're uncles. Our, well, we got the when our too. nephews and nieces turn 13, 15, 18, we'll take them anywhere in the world except North America for travel adventures. And so these kids have become these extraordinary world citizens, and they try to outdo each other on how far off the grid can so they go. So where are you going? Where have you been? India, Bhutan, Cuba, um, all over South America. Um and but what's so fun is to when you they first go in there 13, you know, it's a little bit like, whoa, okay, but get this. So, oh my gosh, I'm like, so, you don't have to mentor me, you can just adopt me. So, my 13 year old nephew, when he's 13, we go on this trip to Costa Rica and we use this company called Backroads. And he goes, at 13, I want to work for this company. I go, game on, let's put together a plan. And so, anyway, we put together the plan. He graduated from college, immediately went to work for Backroads. They don't hire people out of college. A year later, they made him a trip leader. They don't make people trip leaders that young. A year later, they made him a manager. And he's having the time of his life. Well, yeah. 
as the back roads life. of all companies. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. Isn't that wild? That but once is again, amazing. it goes back to, and that's what I think is so fun about telling stories and mentoring because I just said to him, like, what do you want to do? He had this goal at 13. And boom, we just we put together a plan. There was no way it could not happen. What was the plan? I mean, at 13. So you're like, okay, get these experiences, learn these languages. So one, he knew he had two, if not three more trips with me. So I said, first thing you're going to do is you're going to completely f- befriend these guides. Uh, and you're going to learn everything about them and why they're guides. And so then when he went to apply, four of them were amazing references for him. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. so here's this guy in college, you know, with this degree, and these guys love him because he stayed in touch with them, sincerely, because he's so interested in it. And what else did he have to do? Uh, well, it was interesting because he had such incredible references, and they don't hire kids out of college. That's incredible. So they created the job for him. And it was like sort of this scuzzy job where he was like a mechanic in this giant warehouse where all the bikes came. He was the best mechanic, and he had no biking or mechanic skills. He was the best mechanic they'd ever seen. So passionate, would do anything, just make it all happen. Great attitude. And so then they said, you should apply to be assistant trip leader. And he's like, okay. So we applied, and they made him a trip leader. And then a year later, they said, you should apply to be manager of the Southwest region. He's like, oh, no way. And he applied and he I got get, the job. I get that catalog, by the way. I just read it last night. The back. I mean, I've I'm taken like, 18 of their trips. Okay. That's so funny because I said to David, like, this is what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> no. You, I want not an Let's le- take not, a backwards trip I don't want to be a guide. I want to be a guest. Yeah. Everywhere. No, I'll tell you, I've given Everywhere. you a whole list. Whole oh, list. I, need, I need their list because I was studying it. And I was looking up the hotels to be like, maybe I could like jimmy this and like do it on my own because it's expensive. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's expensive. So um, we were talking about success and like different ways of defining it. Do you feel successful? I feel wickedly fortunate and blessed and like... I'm so successful because I have the most amazing group of friends in Seattle. Um, because of Dan Levitan, I never have to work again. Uh, you know, being he's done such an extraordinary job with Mavron. I have people like Kristen Hamilton, who I consider one of my best friends. Um, so I have a husband I love. My mom is amazing. Um, my nephews, like I was talking to one on the way down. So my nephews, their whole lives have come to my triathlons. And so I said to both of them, we're going to do a relay because one nephew's a great swimmer and one's a great oh, runner. Oh, perfect. You can be the biker. Yeah. And so the game on. And so I didn't look it up, but I do this uh, triathlon every year called Oceanside in April. And I thought they had a relay. So I said what, to him, what level triathlon is it? Uh, half. Half Ironman. And so I said to both of them, it's what we're going to do. And they're both like, whoa, what did we sign up for? I just learned they don't do relays. So I got to oh. find another one. Oh, no. Um, but, you know, to answer your question... I've just, I've had the best life. Yeah, you really have. So talk about a little bit about Mavron. You were there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, how would you describe yourself as an investor? Uh, not a good one. <laughs> really? Yeah. And so I'm an operator. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm an operator. I love operating and was really fortunate that I was in a Mavron portfolio company. Uh, and Dan got to know me and said, wow, it's interesting. Like, how could we have venture capital operate more like great portfolio companies mm-hmm. with metrics and key objectives? And so he brought me in as a dual role COO of Mavron. And then they'd assigned me for a lot of early stage companies. Like I was so fortunate I got to work with Trupanion early on. But don't you even in an operating role mm-hmm. play some sort of role as an investor, like yes, helping definitely. analyze? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're in a role, but you were just saying you just weren't great at that part of it. Yeah. I was much more, I'm an operator. Yeah. 
Do you have some sort of go-to as far as if you are trying to teach someone? If you had a mini-me that was like, teach me how to operate. Teach me how to look at a company and how to put systems in place. Do you have your go-to systems? Yeah. Once again, joy of being 60s, I've learned so much. And so I probably meet with four companies a week. Uh, and so... I'll sort of filter who I'm going to meet with, and then they either are meeting with me because they hope I can help them raise money, mm -hmm. uh, or they want help from a systems perspective. And so what's so fun is that they won't know this, but I basically will go in, depending on the role, say, with my VC hat on. And so I'll listen, ask tons of questions, and then 45 minutes in, I'll say, do you want to critique? because I can be really blunt and really helpful. And then I'll say, here are the three things that VCs look at. We look at teams, we look at markets, we look at what's the solution. Let me tell you how you scored on those three. Let me tell you is you were non-responsive in all of these questions that I asked you, and I would never fund you for these reasons. And here's a roadmap of the things you need to go figure out. Here's four people I'll introduce you to. Or you know, that'll be one path where I recently met with someone and I said, this is fine, but this is never going to be venture-backed. You know, we have to see our way that this is a billion-dollar opportunity. Like, your company has to be worth a billion. You aspire to have it be worth $100 million, which sounds great, but that is not a venture company. And, like, yes. that was an aha moment. Yeah. From an operational perspective, yeah, I have so many systems. <clears throat> uh, and that's what was fun at Mavron is I would dive in with my systems um, because— that's... Are you super technical? No, not. <clears throat> when I say systems, I mean, like, first— making sure we understand the market to setting up our vision for where we're going to be in three years, where we're going to be in five years, uh, going through, I have these giant, um, giant boards that I use and then a really interactive process where like, I'll do three day sessions for people, uh, where I'll take their whole management team and then they'll walk off with their game plan for the year. So yeah, I have a lot of tools around that. I know you said like sometimes when you take these breaks, as we were walking in to do the podcast that you come back kind of almost like a new person or with like a whole new career. A new view. A new view. Do you think that you would ever start a whole business around consultancy? Nope. Uh, because. So well, are the people paying you to do this? Because like. No. That's, that's a service. Yeah. No, I would never do that for the following reasons. One. Um, you don't need to. Uh, no. My passion is health and wellness. So companies in the health and wellness space, game on. I would do that all day long. The reason I'm trustee at Harborview is I'm so passionate about what Harborview is doing. But a general consulting role would have no interest. Yeah. No interest at all. I would never do it. The, the, the business side of you, though, that's coming in and saying, hey, I mean, that's so valuable. I just got a lot. I mean, I want to re-listen and, like, take notes. Be like, okay, I need to do these things. I've got my assignments. And so where do you think the trends are in health and wellness? Like what, what are we going to see? You said you're 10 years maybe too early, but what's what's hot right now? Um, you know, so there's three things that I think are a dilemma that we've got to figure out. One, <clears throat> I don't even know where to start at the tragedy of all of these chronic diseases people are living with that are all self-induced. You know, so going back to the three drivers of our health, 60% behavior, lifestyle, environment, 30% your genetics, 10% the healthcare system. So what are we doing? We're returning to the healthcare system and saying, okay, solve the fact that I don't even exercise moderately or I eat like shit. Um, and then not understanding even people's genetic predisposition. So what are some of the trends I think that are going to be so fascinating? As these baby boomers, as we're all aging and the chronic diseases are only exploding and healthcare costs are going through the roof and we're taking more and more of our economy through there, at some point, there's going to be the tipping point where like, okay, this all of a sudden is not okay. 
And that's what I was hoping Aravel was going to intercept. Yeah. And I was hoping we were going to find the partners. But it is too early there. So what's the first trend? The first trend is healthcare givers are continue to be so passionate, so driven. When I go to Harborview, when I tell people I'm associated with Harborview, people grab my hand and just say, you work with the most amazing people because the healthcare providers are so passionate and so focused and want to do the right thing. Then concurrently, you've got more and more dollars of our limited incomes going to pay for this care. You've got drug companies that are, you know, extorting. I mean, it's extraordinary what people are paying for legacy drugs now that they can't even afford to take care of. And then you've got politicians that want to move us towards systems that on the whole America is not ready to embrace. And so we're moving towards a point of chaos and that's where the opportunity is going to be, but we're not quite there yet. And so is there a clear idea of what that opportunity, like how to, how those things intersect and how somebody could solve for all that? No, clearly I tried it with Aravel and didn't figure that out. Well, I know, but like it seems like, um, I don't know if it's 10 years too early. I feel like it might be four years. So it for example- It seems like it's like right on the cusp. No, I agree. I do agree with 10 that. 10 years and... seems pretty far out. Uh, that was part of my PSTD or whatever that PTSD, yeah. The shock about that. But no, when the cogs get so extraordinarily low that, you know, my experience at Aravel, I thought I was in the healthy shape of my life when we launched the company. My data comes back, and the first thing my coach says, Clayton, you're pre-diabetic. And I'm like, there's been a data switch. Yeah. Turns out I have genetic variants where I was testing a paleo diet because I thought the paleo triathletes were faster. And so... All my coach had to say is, Clayton, you need dense, rich, complex carbohydrates at every single meal to normalize your blood sugar levels and not be pre-diabetic. Dense, rich, what? Complex carbohydrates. Oh, complex yeah. carbohydrates. People often say, like, yeah, like, woohoo, like, you got to eat white bread and pasta. Like no, yams, not... like sweet potatoes. Yes, yeah. 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 Second thing I learned is I had toxic mercury level. Toxic. My mercury was so high, it was going to impact neurological functions over time. I have a conscious share stock. At that point, I was president of the board of Harborview. I'm like, how could that be? But once again, genetic data with clinical labs. Yeah. So the costs are coming down. Awareness is going up. The pain threshold, when we no longer make healthcare free, because for so much of America right now, they think, well, A, it's free. And B, I go to my doctor and he or she gives me a pill. Yeah. Yeah, nuts. Yeah, it sounds terrible. I would like to relook at all my data. I did download it. Oh, excellent. And I want to just really dive into it because part of the problem is also I was doing those calls like at work. I was kind of half mm-hmm. in. I'd be looking at it and I was also like there was nothing glaring. It yes. was not there was no like hey, your mercury's mm-hmm. off the charts. It right. was a little bit like that scared me when I heard I was like you know, you have the double fat gene. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, Alicia did too. Or maybe it was Megan. We were commiserating on that. Be like, awesome. We get to be like, try really hard to not be fat. Um, so, are you really deliberate about relaxing? Because you sound like you're go, 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 go. Um, How do you just kind of chill? Is it in the pool? So, I live my life especially when I'm working in 15-minute increments. And um, Susan, the um, woman who managed my schedule when we first started working together, I love Susan. I just went over to Bainbridge Island and had dinner with her. And so when we first started working together, she was just meticulous. You know, my schedule would be flawless. And then on Friday, I'd look at it, and I'd toss it all up in the air and have everything rearranged based on what had happened that week and which was much more important to get done the following week. And so... I tried to work with our team a lot on what's highest and best use. And when you're a startup and you're fighting for your life and everything's fluid, highest and best use changes a lot. And 
So I would look every day at every 15 minutes and think, is that the highest and best use of those 15 minutes? Now, within that, wow. within that, I would go exercise every single day. And like I remember when I first started working with Mavron and Dan would see me leave and he'd go, where are you going? I'd go swimming. He goes, it's the middle of the day. I go, I know. Um, but what he learned was for me to be proficient for most of the day, I needed to get that exercise in during that time of day. And then I will say that at Arabelle, I lost my discipline in terms of taking breaks. And I think that you pay a price for that. Mm -hmm. um, and people who I really respected would say, Clayton, you look like shit. You're exhausted. You're falling asleep in meetings. Like, this is not good. Yeah. Uh, so I had to pull back because I was so passionate of trying to solve those problems that I was losing my perspective. And so I still am not clear on how you relax. <laughs> You sort of, I said, how do you relax? You're like, I do my day in 15-minute increments. I'm like, I'm exhausted. So for me... Is it, are they 15 minutes worth of relaxing? Um, so the relaxing is the exercising. And I know that doesn't oh sound right. Well, the but, swimming maybe I can see. Oh, biking is so relaxing. Not outside. Yes. Inside it's relaxing. Oh, no, outside it's more relaxing, much more relaxing. Um, well, with no cars. Well, you're on roads. Yeah. Um, do you ever bike on Mercer Island? All the time. Oh, stop by. All You're the time. You're probably biking near me. Yeah. You got to stop All by. All the time. And so um, what I would love, 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 love to know, and this is what I ask everybody, and I feel like I'm going to know the answer, but this is my final question for everybody. And you can tell me if we haven't covered everything, but is really what fuels you? It goes back, I think, a little bit to being the oldest kid and sort of this passion of wanting to take care of like family and close friends. And I had this financial goal. And when I got to it, it was so liberating because it's like, boom, check the box. And quite bluntly, some of the things I did professionally were intellectually interesting, but I was doing it because I wanted the financial stability to make sure that everyone who's under the Clayton umbrella would never, ever in their life have to think about money. And so <clears throat> thanks to Maverick and Levitin, I was able to check that box. And so I wanted to back Lee Hood and loving being a VC, loving being at Mavron. And Lee said, you can back me if you'll do this idea with me. And I told him no for a quarter. Yeah. Uh, and just said, no. Yeah, I read that. I read that you were like, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I have a great life. Are you kidding? But what I loved about Lee is he said, Clayton, what's going to be your legacy? What's your passion? What do you actually want to do? So I jumped off this giant cliff with Lee Hood to launch Aravel. And now when I, when I talk to people, I say, okay, following your passion, there's something extraordinary about that. And so if you think about the arc of my life, my 20s was all about my passion. It was about childcare, low-cost tuition, defeating Republicans, um, choice, like all these things. But then I realized, I okay, I wasn't really changing things. And when I was turning 30, and I thought, shoot, I've got a lot of mouths to feed, and I need to get this done. So I thought, set a financial goal and start striving towards that. So I started setting all of these goals to make money, and it happened. Yeah, um, but, it's, but you did it in a way that's not in a sellout way. You did it in a way that was intentional. Oh, completely intentional. And, and every team I joined, every company I joined, I loved and respected. But wow, as I said... Um, what fuels Clayton Lewis right now is trying to figure out how to actually help people understand they've got this extraordinary body and opportunity to live a really full, rich life in this body and not be caught in these 
mega chronic epidemics and be taking all these pills. And if you talk to any of my family members, like they would just tell you, I'm so possessed about that. Uh, and so what fuels me is trying to figure that out. And there are so many stories around my passion with that. And that was part of what was liberating about Aravel was, wow, like at Mavron, you check the make the money box. And so now let's go follow your passion and what fuels you. And it's like, there's a big opportunity to transform what's happening within health. And I know I'm going to be much more impactful on that in the future than I have been in the past. Well, I think that you've made, you, you've made a lot of contributions already. It's just a matter of like, what else? Like there's so much more to mm -hmm. give. But if more people were in your mindset... I mean, just imagine, just anybody listening to this podcast, if they could just have that aha moment of like, oh, I didn't realize those statistics. I'm looking at this all wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm not being proactive about my health. Um, yeah, I think we're getting better every year. Like in my family, at least, we're trying really hard Excellent. as baby steps. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely motivated by by you and by Airvel and um, I'm excited to see what happens in, in healthcare and wellness and... And the story's going on, as I said, Lee's taking the data, uh, and they're really doing important work. And A, I want to say thank you so much for inviting me. What a fun oh. conversation. Thank you for being a member of Aravel. Oh, uh, of course. So grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for being such an amazing leader in the community. Oh, thank you. That's such a nice compliment. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I enjoyed it. A lot of fun. Honored to be here. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.